Hello, welcome to Mikey Pod Podcast, episode 286 for March 9th, 2020. Today's guest is founder of Tofurky, Seth Tibbet. He's one of those guests that I was like, I wonder what would happen if I sent an email to the founder of Tofurky about being on the podcast. And he said yes. And it's actually a great conversation. I have great bonus content for patrons this week, too, including a free recipe that that he passed on. We talk about anyway. So, yay. I'm excited about that. If you're just listening for the first time, you probably would like to know that I am Michael Heron. I'm your host. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based in New York City. On this podcast, I have conversations with fellow creators who use their creativity to change the world. I've been sending this podcast to your ears for over 14 years now, and if you like what you hear, subscribe using the colorful buttons on the sidebar or footer at MikeyPod.com, or just search for MikeyPod in your favorite podcast directory. If you'd like to know more about me, stop by my website, MichaelHeron.com. Hit me up on social media everywhere as at Michael Heron, or you can just email me at MikeyPod at gmail.com. Really, I would love to hear from you. I would love it. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. You, like if you're like, ah, oh, he probably gets emails. I don't. <laughs> I would love to hear from you if you listen to this. Um, I want to talk to you about a couple things that are coming up for me. I'm pretty excited. I know I've talked about it on the podcast before. I've had this idea of um, creating a new show, a new solo show. Uh, I do multimedia performance art, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's not. It's storytelling with electronic music and video and uh, music. I already said piano. I usually have some other musicians like a string quartet or something. Um so I've done this, I've done two of these shows, Tentative Armor and um, The Animal Show, and both have premiered at, well, I've done readings of them at Judd's Memorial Church and I've done this show at Dixon Place as co-productions with them. Now, the thing that's exciting is they have asked me to do this third show. It's going to be in their spring 2021 season, and it's a commission. It's my first commission ever. <laughs> They're like giving me money to write and produce this show. Uh, it's not like a lot of money, as you might expect. It's a small theater. But the deal is, the thing that's super exciting about this, well, two things. One is I don't have to raise as much money to make the show happen um, and to do the traveling, which is going to be a lot. But, oh, wait, I didn't even tell you. Did I say that the premise of the show is that I'm going to travel to India throughout the course of the year um, and volunteer with an organization called Animal Aid Unlimited that does street rescue of animals. Um, from what I understand and how I, I perceive this and going there is going to be a totally different thing. Um, animals are everywhere in India and a lot of them need medical attention and care. And this organization has a street team that goes and administers medical care to these animals in the streets. And they have a sanctuary. I'll learn more about it. I'll be podcasting about it when I'm there and videoing and doing all the things that I do and writing a new show. I'll be recording sound and music and um, telling stories and super excited. So that feels like it's all over the place. It'll probably come more into focus <laughs> as things happen. But the thing that's super exciting to me, like from an emotional standpoint, if you'll allow, is that someone's asking me to make this show. This is the first time this has happened. Like usually I get to a point with these shows where I'm like, who do I think I am? Making a show about my experience, uh, starring me with music by me, like, and no one told me to do this. Well, this time someone did. <laughs> it sounds silly, but it's hard to make art. It's hard to believe that it's valuable, especially when it's like solo work like I do. 
Um, so to have Dick's in place, and I talked to Ellie Covan on the phone last week. She's the founder and artistic director of Dick's in place. And have someone like that really believe in what I'm doing enough to be like, yeah, come and do this thing that you don't even know what it is yet. Ah, it feels great. That said, I now is a good time to support my work. <laughs> so if you want, I have books available on my website at michaelheron.com. I'm going to put all of my zines up there. Um, reprints, not the special version that um, patrons get. But now is the time. Stream my music on, uh, on where are the places? Spotify, Google Play. Is it still called Google Play? I think so. And um, Apple Music, Spotify, other things. Now I got to start getting some stuff going because I have to get to India and I have to miss work. I teach and I'm going to have to miss my teaching. So um, if you've been meaning to subscribe on Patreon or something like that, patreon.com slash Michael Heron. I'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. This is the thing like uh, self-promoting is hard. Telling people I need them to support my work is hard. But now we're in the time when I have to do that. So I guess that's helpful for me. I think that's it. I, I think that kind of covered. There were some other topics I wanted to talk about, but they sort of fall, fall, folded, fall, fall, folded in to what I was just talking about. Um, yeah. So here's about Patreon. This podcast is brought to you by my subscribers on Patreon, who, in addition to the warm feeling of knowing they are co-creating with me, they also get lots of perks, zines, free downloads, merch discounts, exclusive patron-only podcasts, and it's going to be a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. When I was making The Animal Show, Patreon was a great... Actually, for part of that time, I was on a site called Drip which if you're old school, you probably know, old school in my world, um, you probably maybe were even a subscriber on Drip. Uh, but I've moved over to Patreon now, and a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff happens there, and it's super cool because I'm able to go back as an artist and, and look at the different phases of things that happen because I would share, like, there was one song called Home Again from Animal Show that um, I was able to share. I shared in process, and I was able to go back and be like, oh, my gosh, I have documents of each way the song existed before. So it's pretty cool. So you could subscribe on patreon.com slash Michael Heron um, or just check it out for more info. I subscribe to other artists on Patreon. I love it as a platform, and I love it as a way for artists to make work. So there you go. So enough about me. Today's guest is, as I mentioned before, Seth Tibbet. We're having a great conversation, and he was really great to talk to. Um, I think you're going to love this interview, and we'll get to it right after this track from Kimia Dawson. Kimia Dawson. I haven't thought about her music for a while, but I was just sort of flashbacking to when I first moved to New York and loved. I was listening to her a lot, and I got to go see her uh, show of hers. In, on a Sunday afternoon, I think it was at a place called Southpaw, and I'm turning 50, I've turned 50 this year, and it looks like I'm going to be one of those old guys that just keeps on telling stories. I'm going to try to stop right now. Here's Kimya Dawson, Lullaby for the Taken, and after this, we'll have the interview with Seth. So 
I go down and I watch him sing And the way he sings sends a chill right through me Yeah And now there's a mountain goat Precariously balanced on the frog stuck in my throat It says sometimes whispering's okay But maybe you'd feel better if you screamed today The lady took the baby, I know She loves the baby, but the baby has a daddy And his daddy loves him too How could she take the baby? Maybe she's gone crazy, she won't share It's not fair, there's nothing I can do The lady took the baby, I know She loves the baby, but the baby has a daddy And his daddy loves him too How could she take the baby? Maybe she's gone crazy, she won't share It's not fair, there's nothing I can do Tuesday night, Grandma curled up in my bed By Wednesday morning, my Grandma was dead I was in Charlotte, I took the bus home Her shoes, watch, and teeth were still in my room And as I lay me down to sleep I felt her spirit rise up through me She said, I got to live a long 86 years Dry your tears I know it's hard, but please let go So I can meet your grandpa in the undertow Chin up, girl, you've gotta be strong And know when you're singing, I'm singing along The lady took the baby, I know She loves the baby, but the baby has a daddy And his daddy loves him too How could she take the baby? Maybe she's gone crazy, she won't share It's not fair, there's nothing I can do The lady took the baby, I know She loves the baby, but the baby has a daddy And his daddy loves him too How could she take the baby? Maybe she's gone crazy, she won't share It's not fair, there's nothing I can do Little bitty baby so far away We hope that you can come home soon When we're not together now Joining me now on the podcast is Seth Tibbet. He's the founder of Tofurky, and I'm super excited to be talking to you, Seth. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to be on it, Michael. Thanks for thinking of us. Yeah, for sure. Um, I saw that you have a book coming out, and I know it's gonna. It comes out in April. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, kind of the story of my uh, rags to better rags story of <laughs> starting out in. Uh, you know, well, Ohio goes back to those days, but really the uh, most of it is the history of the company and going from, you know, 2500 bucks investment of my personal money that I saved up from being a naturalist for eight years and, uh, you know, leading all the way through time till 1995 when Tofurky, you know, happened. But before that, it was a lot of 
uh, I guess you could say struggle, at least financially. I mean, those were happy years of my life, but it was living on 300 bucks a month kind of for a long time there and making a lot of mistakes. You know, I wasn't really a business genius. Still, I'm not um, just a guy that had a vision and liked tempeh and was wanting to bring plant-based foods to the world back in, you know, a time when the category was pretty uh, nascent and just getting going. So it's uh, it's a good story and it was fun to write about it and go back and remember things and thank a lot of the people that had helped. And uh, I'm excited about the book coming out in April. It's on Amazon now for pre-order, but yeah, it's called In Search of the Wild Tofurkey. Seeing the book maybe look more into your story, this is what I could find. And I lo- I'm really attracted to stories like this where you weren't really setting out to make a big company, right? Like maybe, right. can you tell me a little about how you started? Like it was, you were living in a camper at the time or a van, is that right? Uh, in 1980, <clears throat> I was living in the summers. I'd live in a teepee and in the winter I'd move into a barn. Uh, so <laughs> it was a teepee and a barn out at this uh, summer camp and outdoor school that my friends and I were trying to uh, get going, but, you know, it was hard sledding. We didn't have any money, and we had a beautiful piece of land we were renting, but uh, going nowhere fast. And in 1980, in the summer, I went up to Alaska, uh, and I got a job as a naturalist for the Forest Service. Thank you, Jimmy Carter. Mm. And um, I was doing trail work and teaching high school kids about uh, natural history, and then uh, I came back down to Oregon after a summer in Alaska where I had saved up 7,500 bucks, and which was my apex of my life at that point. That was big money. Yeah. Uh, and I realized that when Ronald Reagan uh, got elected that it didn't look good for a lot of my natural uh, history jobs that were dependent on government funding. So I thought, well, maybe this is a good time to go into business. These Republicans seem to like that. So I guess, thanks, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> don't usually uh, say that. But yeah, it was a good twist uh, for me, and I was ready for something new. So uh, with that in mind, uh, you know, I had been making tempeh for friends and family for about three years at that point. Uh, after visiting the farm in Tennessee. Do you know about the farm? I know. Uh, so I had one round of vegetarianism in my 20s in probably like 1988. And the farm vegetarian cookbook was one of the cookbooks that I got. So is, am I thinking of the right farm? You are exactly right. And that was a really important book for me. I bought the first copy of that in 1975. And I started reading uh, about tempeh in there because at that point I was a vegetarian and sometimes vegan and I was living off of uh, a recipe in there for soy grit burgers which were just little pieces of soybean uncooked ground up very small and then I made a burger out of them with like whole wheat flour and I'd fry them and they tasted bad but they (laughs) digested worse and it was really uh, amazing to read about this tempeh, which was supposed to be very digestible, and the kids at the farm loved it. And 
tasted great. And so I went out there. I got a job in 1977 working as a naturalist in Tennessee, about four hour drive from the farm. And I got a weekend off and drove over there to the farm and uh, talked my way into staying, letting me stay overnight with a couple friends and uh, actually got some of the tempeh starter then and brought it back to the tent where I was living and made tempeh out in a field in Tennessee. You know, you have to incubate tempeh at 88 degrees for 24 hours, which is just perfect for, uh, you know, Tennessee is basically a big tempeh incubator <laughs> all summer. So I made the tempeh and cooked it up and, oh my God, it was just like love at first bite. And oh, that's amazing. So in 1980, I saw no one's making tempeh and I know a little bit how to make tempeh. So I decided to go into business uh, then. And I was just trying to, A, I thought if I could, you know, I know that business was like sometimes they could support things like a camp or environmental center. So that was sort of my vision was I'll go into business and make some money and we'll be able to support some of these causes. And then uh, the second thing was, of course, trying to support myself. And my goal was if I can just make $1,000 a month, I'll be set. And so those were my two goals. <laughs> yeah. And that was, was that still 1980 or were you? Yeah, that was 1980. Then? It was December 1980 when I started it. And, uh, you know, I soon went back to, for Christmas that year, it was December 1st, 1980. I signed up for the business. And then Christmas, I went out to my aunt's house in the Midwest in Minnesota. And I was so excited. And I was telling her about this business I was going to start. And she said, Seth, I got to stop you here. This is the worst idea I've ever heard selling solely to the American public. This is a meat eating country and it's always going to be a meat eating country. Uh, So she was like, uh, very discouraging. And for, you know, many years after it, it sort of looked like she may be right because I was basically failing, you know, and not making money, but, and it was a long way from profitable, but then I had my Tofurky moment, which changed the fortunes of the company. But those were, you know, very satisfying years leading up to it too, you know, seeing the tempeh business grow and learning how to market uh, foods and gradually learning to be less of a businessman in the uh, footsteps of like Mad Men, you know, and oh, yeah. three-piece suit guys, two martini lunch, to just like who I was, which was, you know, this naturalist who went to the hippie commune and found tempeh. And, uh, <laughs> I love uh, that you found tempeh instead of Jesus. It's yeah, good... <laughs> it was uh it was a spiritual commune but they were uh they were into a lot of things they smoked a lot of pot they were into just not just christianity but buddhism and hinduism and psychedelics and it was a great place they were really kind people and didn't know anything about business but they were you know now you look at 50 years later and the germ like they were 1200 hippies living a completely they called it absolute vegetarian diet it wasn't even vegan was not really a term that you used back then it was you were a vegetarian which meant you ate eggs and dairy or you were an absolute vegetarian and you 
uh, no eggs or dairy or animal products. So, yeah, they were uh, really instrumental in not just my life, but in starting something that you look at now, 50 years later, wow, like the germs of kind of what they uh, were promoting, which was tofu, tempeh, soy milk, soy yogurt. They were doing all of it back then at a time when you just couldn't buy that stuff in any supermarket in America. And uh, so, you know, hats off. The hippies were right, eh? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious about some of those times when when you were just getting things rolling with a tempeh and you were having, you know, people telling you this is a terrible idea and it was feeling like it was a terrible idea. How did you navigate through those periods when, you know, those really discouraging moments? Well, I was, you know, pretty stupid about business. So I may have not had the self-awareness that I was really a failure. (laughs) So I was just trying to be less stupid, you know, day after day. And the longer I stayed in it, the more I became less stupid. And, um, you know, for me, it was the vision and the mission of the business was doing fine. It was intact and it was sustaining me. I mean, we were growing like, you know, 10% or something a year and uh, getting our tempeh out to places beyond Portland and up into Seattle and down to California. And I would go down and I'd do tempeh demos in the stores and, you know, I'd meet people and turn them on to tempeh. So I was kind of thrilled, even though the money was not there. Um, you know, I'd go to my tax guy every year and he'd be like, how are you still in business? Like, you're still losing all this money. Like, you know, and I probably wouldn't be in business if it hadn't been for, you know, the mission. Um, I think mission-based businesses of which, by the way, every vegan business that I've ever seen is somewhat Mm mission-based. And so I think mission-based businesses will keep you going longer and have a better chance of success because there's a metric other than money to it. And uh, that was really what was keeping me going was I may not be making a profit really yet, but I'm getting by. I'm supporting myself and a few employees in a very meager way. But, you know, the tempeh is expanding and the business shows promise still. So I, uh, I really felt like that was a key point, um, in businesses. So I I really think, you know, looking back mission is just as important as money. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that I was just trying to equate it. Like I'm a musician and, and artist and various other things. And I'm trying to equate it with that. And that's the same thing. Like I've, I don't necessarily make profit off of any of those things, but there's this passion and a mission connected to it. And that's what keeps things going. That's a really good point, you know, uh, about musicians are very similar to that. I'm sure that there's a lot of, I played in a bluegrass band when I was out there in uh, the Tempe years, you know, and we'd go out to bars and events and it's very satisfying to, get that feedback, you know, and energy from a crowd, no matter what the pay is. Yeah. Um, so I, that's a really good analogy. Did you refer to it as your, your Tofurky moment? Yeah. The Tofurky moment, um, you know, was 1995 when I, uh, 
Yeah, I've been struggling, you know, at Thanksgiving myself to find something for years and years. But, you know, more than that, um, I did at that point. Life had changed for me. You know, I went from a bachelor who was living in a treehouse that I had built. You know, uh, I was renting trees for 25 bucks a month on a neighbor's <laughs> land. I built this treehouse, three-story treehouse that I lived in for seven years, you know, as a bachelor and that was fine you know but then i uh 1991 i got married 1992 we had a child and you know the i was really i was looking for a way out at that point because i was like oh this tempe thing i still love it but now i got these responsibilities and so i started thinking about how can i make this bigger and you know pivoting to tofu which was certainly more uh, known than tempeh was at that point was kind of a key element. We were experimenting with tofu pies. My wife was making these delicious key lime and uh, different flavors of tofu pies, but they never really uh, took off. But thinking about expanding the business and having nothing to eat at the holidays, um, I decided to look at that. And the other clue that was interesting was every Sunday I would walk down, I was living in this small town and it was about a quarter mile hike to the local general store. And I'd walk down there and buy a newspaper. Remember newspapers? I do remember them. <laughs> yeah. They were still had news and they were still on paper. And, uh, I would buy the Sunday paper just to look through the one ads to see if there's any food equipment that was a good deal, used equipment I could afford. But I'd also read the comics and sports and everything else. And uh, what I noticed was for several years before 1995, on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, there was always a vegetarian or a tofu joke, like, do you want light tofu or dark tofu? Ha, ha, ha. You know, uh -huh. and you got a vegetarian for coming. You know, what are they going to eat? And, you know, the turkeys are protesting. And, I mean, it was just, like, really striking to me. And so I thought, you know, I have this problem. So maybe others do, too, because it looks like there's energy there. And uh, so I teamed up with a friend of mine who had, made these uh, really tasty tofu roasts. He's uh, Hans Robel from The Higher Taste in Portland. He runs a sandwich business there and very successful. And I had these tempeh drumettes that I added, and I had always loved the name Tofurky. You know, I didn't invent that name. Like in 1981, for instance, when I was delivering tempeh in my little three-door Datsun wagon that was all beat up and the driver's side door was closed and locked with a bungee cord, <laughs> uh, I would go to the local natural food store and I'd always have, they had a tofurkey sandwich, which was tofu marinated in something that made soy sauce that was slightly reminiscent of, uh, of turkey. And then I would eat that for lunch, and I thought that was a clever name. Uh, and they went out of business doing that, but the name stuck with me for all those years. And 
you know, at that point, I'd been failing, like I said, trying to be this like businessman of my that was in my head of, you know, a dude in a suit and tie and, you know, playing it straight wasn't getting me anywhere. So again, people were saying, Toperky's a dumb name. Don't go that route. But I was like, screw it. You know, I just want to be folky and friendly and bold and let's go with Toperky. So it turned out to be a good name. <laughs> it's interesting that you said it because in a way, when you were talking about how it didn't become Toferky till wait, was that like mid nineties? Is that what you were saying? Like ninety four, yeah. ninety five? Yeah, nineteen ninety five we sold eight hundred and eighteen Toferky feasts to stores in the Portland, uh, Oregon and Seattle, Washington areas, a little bit in California. Um, and it was mostly, you know, the co-ops that really embraced them from the start. Like there was this chain of stores that was called Nature's that was like a fancier for that time anyways, more upscale. And they were like, oh, my God, I can't sell one of these because they were like 30 bucks. You know, it was like they served eight people. But at that time, you know, the kiss of death was having any product over four dollars in the freezer. Uh, yeah. I was trying to sell this big tofu tempeh concoction that, you know, was 30 bucks. And they were like, no, we, we're not going to do that. We're not stupid. Uh, <laughs> and so but I went to uh, Puget Sound Consumers Co-op in Seattle and Food Front uh, Co-op in Portland. And they were like, yeah, this sounds great. So we sold a lot there, and we sold so many at the Seattle Puget Consumers Co-op that they actually installed a Toferky hotline because they were getting so many orders where customers could call and order them. Oh, and wow. That was like, wow, this is, a, this is kind of a product that's catching on. And the other thing we did, you know, like back then in 1995, only 30% of Americans had computers in their house. And they mostly use those for Pong and doing budgets and word processing, not so much, you know, Internet sales and stuff. So the way that you talk to companies back then was through the 800 number. Mm. And so we decided, let's get us, you know, this is why we called it T-O-F-U-R-K-Y without the E, because we wanted the 800 number T-O-F-U-R-K-Y, 800, oh, okay. 800 Toferky. And the first year we did that, which was 1996, I was like, wow, this 800 number isn't getting a lot of play. I thought it would be ringing off the hook. And then I was sitting in my office after uh, Christmas, and I was like, wow, I wonder what happens if you dial T-O-F-U-R-K-E. And I called that and this uh -oh. woman and she's like, oh my God, you don't know how many calls I've had for that damn tofu turkey. This is like, <laughs> she was like a nail and hair salon in Los Angeles. And, uh, oh no. She, I was like, oops. <laughs> and, uh, she proceeded to rant on me for three or four minutes, but. Were you able to solve that? I guess at that point, like, there's really nothing to do. 
no, there's nothing to do. But, uh, you know, eventually the Internet came on and we dropped the need for the 800 number. You know, now everybody, you know, with phone rates, what they were back then, you know, long distance. Oh, my God, that's going to be like five dollars to call that company. Oh, yeah. Be put on hold and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, we also put uh, these three by five postcards with a stamp on it asking all these for feedback on the Tofurky feasts um, that first year and actually a second year too. And it was getting those back that really made me think, you know, we had discovered this powerful niche Mm -hmm. because people were saying things like, oh my God, these are, this is what I've been waiting for, for, you know, 30 years, this product, and I'm not a second class citizen anymore. I have something to eat. And it just started to <clears throat> go viral in a very uh, pre-internet kind of authentic way, uh, you know, that it was spreading. And, um, you know, it was really, I think, Tofurky was uh, a major turning point kind of for meat alternatives. There was other meat alternatives that were out there at that time, but... Tofurky, because it was attached to the food holiday of the year for America, you know, Thanksgiving, it was like uh, people would sit down at the table and talk about, well, what is everybody eating, you know, on Turkey Day? Well, I'm not eating turkey at all. And so I'm going to bring this Tofurky. And everyone's, well, it's Tofurky. And talk. so it was really this uh, amazing time. And it really became you know, took hold of imaginations uh, in the culture. And it was not just articles were written about it from, you know, a nonfiction standpoint. What is tofurkey? It's tofu and tempeh. And this is what tofu is, this is what tempeh is. But it was also, you know, becoming like, uh, it was getting a place in the culture. Like Lisa Simpson would ask for tofurkey on the Simpsons and, it was an answer on Jeopardy, and it was a thing in sitcoms like The X Files had a big thing on Tofurky, and uh, on and on and on. And so, characters in novels were writing and talking Tofurky. Yeah, just exploded uh, into the culture and the consciousness, and you know, in a lot of ways, I think <clears throat> paved helped pave the way, certainly for. Beyond Burgers and Impossible and everything that's happening today. And, you know, it wasn't the only thing, but it was kind of a cultural, uh, iconic turning point, I guess. Yeah, I was, I'm glad you saw that because I was going to, I couldn't tell if I was overstating the idea that the word tofurkey is kind of a household name, even for non vegetarian or vegan people. Like, everyone knows what tofurkey is, it seems. Yeah, it really um, caught hold and, um, you know, it was like <clears throat> marketing, it got all these awards, top 50 brands, you know, blah, 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 recognized. <clears throat> it was always an edgy name, like there was still, you know, even after starting it, there were detractors, there was like, uh, because of its comical name, like the thing, the other thing was in 1995, like these other brands we're all trying to play it straight in their marketing. You know, it was weird because you'd go to these parties at trade shows and the the brand owners were 
some of the funniest and fun people on the planet, you know, but you look at their marketing and it puts you to sleep. There was nothing magical or exciting, you know, uh, there wasn't really this story about it. It was just like buy our product because blah, blah, blah. It has more, you know, it doesn't have this much fat or carbs or whatever. And, you know, Tofurky was just like it made you laugh and it was memorable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we got uh, a lot of late night TV jokes and, you know, Conan O'Brien did Tofurky hunting thing and, you know, it wasn't all positive. It came became a lightning rod in a lot of ways because it was like going after an American, you know, tradition. Like Thomas Jefferson said, you know, we're always going to be a turkey eating country. And, you know, it was just like uh, really kind of an insult. Like people would call, like this guy would call and he, he goes, you know what I'm having for Thanksgiving? I'm eating a whole damn cow. And he'd hang up, you know. And you'd <laughs> this was to the, the 800 really? number? That's what you have to do with your life? Okay. Those moments are so funny to me. Like, it happens on Facebook now, you know, and people make those comments. And it's like, what? Okay. Right. Like, what, what do you want me to do? <clears throat> I think that guy was probably a Russian troll. Like, he was an early adopter. <laughs> And he just, the only way he knew how to troll was calling 800 Tofurky, no E. Yeah, right. But they had figured that out by that time. But, you know, it was uh, one of those things, you know, like Gandhi said, what, you know, first they ignore you. And we had been ignored for 15 years at that point. And then they laugh at you and hello, here we are. Laugh yeah. away. Yeah. And now like you're everywhere. Tof like, are you distributed throughout the world or? Yeah, we're 27,000 stores plus all over the world. And, uh, you know, we're in the sun never sets on the Tofurky Empire. We sell uh. a lot in the UK and Germany and in Australia. Um, the one continent that we don't sell on or we haven't ever sold on. What do you think that continent is? Um, I don't even have a guess. This is a bar bet. You can you, you can make money on this, or you can <laughs> get a drink. But most people think it's Antarctica, which is wrong. But it's really Africa. We haven't uh, really sold directly. There might be. There's probably Tofurky somewhere in Africa, but yeah. Africa has you know been a hard one. Although there have been people you know interested. Like now, really, the, the category is so hot that really all plant-based companies are really uh, going through the conversation, not of if we create this product and it's really good and tasty and the price is right, who are we going to convince to buy it? And how are we going to get shelf space? More, the conversation is more, how are we going to make enough? And who can we, you know, who are we going to sell to and who are we going to put on hold until we get bigger equipment in here? And it's just a mind-blowing time uh, right now to be in the vegan slash plant-based foods business. I mean, what's going on? It's it's epic. Yeah, and you've had like a, a unique opportunity to be on board for such such a big stretch of time. You've seen so many changes, obviously. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, it's really been 
one of the real pleasures and joys of my life, uh, having the front row seat to seeing, you know, what's been and what's happening now. And, um, and it's not just the countries that you would think of, like the UK and Germany, yeah, but it's, it's like Finland, it's like Iceland, it's like um, Slovakia, Chile. I mean, the, the interest just pours in from around the world. South Africa, um, the Middle East, you know, people send me photos from Kuwait where they have tofurkey that somehow finds its way into a supermarket there. And uh, it's just like, uh, you know, there's a worldwide change in the paradigm happening right now. And I always, you know, used to say kind of like that I could like back, say in the early 2000s, you know, you'd be interviewed and the question would come up, you know, how many tofurkeys are you selling versus turkeys? And will there ever be a day when there'll be more tofurkeys sold than turkeys? And I would always go, yeah, I can see that day. But it was kind of like wishful thinking on my mm -hmm. part. But now I can really see it because, you know, I mean, even on the, the holiday feasts, like some of the biggest R&D teams uh, in foods centers all over the planet are working on just everything from, you know, turkey to chicken, lamb, steaks. I think, you know, somebody will be selling, I would predict, uh, a, a really good steak within the next one or two years. You know, like there's just all kinds of uh, exciting things. It's a really exciting time to be alive and um, just traveling even I went to India last July and you know how many vegans there are in India? There's 1.2 or 1.3 billion people in India. What would you say? What would you guess is the number of vegans in India? Um, oh, I, I always scared I'm like going to totally miss it. Like I would say like over half the people are vegan. Like, cause there are lots of vegetarians there, right? Yeah. So there's 28% of the country um, vegetarian, but as far as vegans go, it's like less than 200,000. Wow. That's surprising to me. I know it, but at the same time, they're very dedicated. They're very enthused. You know, the, the world, the internet's connected us now. There's great vegan cheese. There's great vegan ice cream. There's amazing vegan products like even in um, a faraway place like India, which has really high barrier to entry to the market um, in terms of customs um, and also just how far it is from all these centers that uh, of industry that are making vegan foods. But, you know, um, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Indonesia, China, China's really a sleeping giant, I think, we're going to see a lot of uh, more products from America and other places that are going to be sold throughout China in the coming years, too. So mm. it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so we should wrap up this part of our conversation, as, uh, people who are listening, and assuming, Seth, you're still on board with doing a little bonus interview for subscribers. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
Yeah, so we'll wrap this part up, but not without making sure people know where to find Tofurky on the internet. It's at tofurky.com, yeah? It's tofurky.com, and you can spell it T-O-F-U-R-K-Y, and you get extra bonus points, karmic points for that, but you can also throw an E in there. We have both URLs of the T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y, now I'm, I'm <laughs> which doubting. we had to do because of stupidity. But Yeah, that was smart. I think I may be one of those people. Like I, can't, I don't know whether or not I've been putting the E in there. I won't be anymore. I've corrected well, myself. Well, you see it. It's just funny. You see it everywhere. And it's one of those things, if I had a nickel, blah, blah, blah. But. <laughs> Uh, amazing. Well, thanks for joining me for this interview. And uh, people who are listening, if you want to listen to more with me and Seth, uh, check out my Patreon page. That was Equations from Beloved Binge, who you have heard on the podcast a few episodes ago. Go back and check that one out. If you didn't already, you should subscribe. And your favorite podcatcher, you can always find it at MikeyPod.com. I'm on social media everywhere as at Michael Heron. And as I mentioned before, there will be a bonus episode of this conversation, more with me and Seth, posted on my Patreon page. If you've been thinking about becoming a subscriber on Patreon, now's a great time because I'm going to need some more Support for my work as I launch into all of this traveling to India and my work with the animals there and whatever other thing comes up 
So thank you for considering that. If you're someone that invests in art, if you are someone who likes to give big chunks of money to artists who want to do life-changing, world-changing, people-shifting work, look me up. You got the contact info. I'd love your help. I'd love for you to be a part of this and to co-create with me in whichever way, even if it's just following this free podcast and listening and letting me know that you're there. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful that I'm able to share my work and share these people who I love so much and who I believe in. Um, So yay. Thanks for whatever you're doing to be a part of this work.